From Muse by Clio and the Clio Awards, this is Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. This week on Tagline. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer those Aggies. Stay thirsty, my friends. The brief was uh, that men fear being uninteresting more than anything. And it was all about how he kind of sort of dressed up his dating profile to be much more heroic and much more interesting and make him seem like much more of a world traveler and all these things. Because we rejected this notion of the person who was more interesting because they bought a Dos Equis. That seemed silly to us. There was a beautiful nugget of an insight which gave us the opportunity to position the brand. I just thought it was a wonderful thesis and premise. And then kind of the only thing left to figure out was, all right, how do we make it a Dos Equis thing? Oh my God, it's the first day, first setup, first day of the campaign that I'm thrilled to be doing and someone's going to die. In 2007, Dos Equis created one of the all-time great advertising characters, the most interesting man in the world. Dreamed up by Carl Lieberman and Brandon Henderson, and portrayed by Jonathan Goldsmith, the character was equal parts charming and ludicrous. Three years before Isaiah Mustafa would get on a horse for Old Spice, the most interesting man's faux macho, Hemingway-esque antics, and his not one but two taglines, of course he had to have two, anchored a campaign that would last for a decade, inspire countless memes, and raise an obscure Mexican beer to national attention and extraordinary sales. On this episode of Tagline, we'll catch up with Carl and Brandon, and their boss at the time, Jeff Kling, as well as the planner, Caroline Credit, and account exec, Mary Perhatch, who were also instrumental to the campaign's launch. We'll also talk to the brand managers at the time, Willem Jan Vanderhoven and Lisa Fenning, as well as Steve Miller, who directed every spot in the campaign, the voice actor Will Lyman, and of course the man himself, Jonathan Goldsmith. I'm Tim Nudd, Editor-in-Chief of Muse by Clio, and coming up, it's the probably somewhat exaggerated, but still mostly true story of Dos Equis and the most interesting man in the world. Season 1 of Tagline is brought to you by GSTV. For those of you who may not be familiar, there's a good chance you watch GSTV every time you fuel up. GSTV is a national video network that's had incredible growth, now reaching 92 million viewers a month with a unique one-to-one moment of attention. Think about it. What campaign would you run with that moment? On Tagline, we're discussing some of the most memorable spots in history. Imagine how those campaigns, or your next one, could be creatively transformed in context on GSTV. To fuel your next creative campaign, visit gstv.com tagline. In the third week of April 2007, a 30-second TV commercial for Dos Equis began airing in the U.S., introducing a character who would quickly become one of the most iconic in the history of advertising. The at times grainy footage showed a bearded man bench-pressing two ladies sitting on chairs, arm-wrestling one of Fidel Castro's men, freeing a bear from a trap, and laughing hysterically as he showed off an enormous trophy fish. A clear nod to Ernest Hemingway. A deadpan voiceover described even more ridiculously impressive traits of the man. And by the end of the spot, a legend was born, in more ways than one. The police often question him just because they find him interesting. His beard alone has experienced more than a lesser man's entire body. His blood smells like cologne. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. Stay thirsty, my friends. The commercial had gone through Millward Brown consumer testing in the months prior, and had performed better than almost any spot the research company had ever seen. Dos Equis was understandably thrilled by this, but it hadn't been an easy road. Just nine months earlier, the two young creatives who would eventually dream up the most interesting man were frankly sick to death of working on the brand. When Carl and I got put on it, you know, the brief was an authentic Mexican beer was like the brief, and we worked on that for a while. It's almost like when you go by a restaurant and it says authentic Mexican food, and you're just like, oh, if you have to say that, that's probably not like a great sign. And then I think at some point, 
to their credit, someone over there at Heineken said, this is terrible. We need to do something besides these ads. Brandon Henderson and Carl Lieberman, old college buddies from the University of Delaware, were a creative team at Euro RSCG in New York. They'd been working on Dos Equis for a while, with not a lot to show for it. After killing the authentic Mexican beer idea, the brand tried to get Carl and Brandon inspired by sending them to Mexico for a week. But that didn't go so well either. We got so lost on the way from the airport to our hotel in Mexico City that I think we just decided we weren't going to do the tour of Mexico. We were just going to stay at our hotel. We got an accident in the car, the rental car. We just returned the car, hung out in Mexico City for a week, and then flew back. (laughs) I remember correctly, a truck ran us off the road. (laughs) When the time came for the next Dos Equis creative meeting at the agency, Carl and Brandon basically had no work to show. And I don't know if we were lazy or mad or whatever, but we refused to work on it. Jeff Klein, who was our boss, came in and was like, you guys are going to have stuff for the noon meeting, right? And we were like, no, man, we're not working on this. We already worked on this forever and all our stuff died. And he was like, oh no, you need to have stuff for noon. And so we just scrambled. At the same time, a planner at the agency, Caroline Credit, had been working on a new strategy for the brand. Since Corona, its major rival among Mexican import beers, was all about being laid back and lying on the beach, Dos Equis decided it wanted to be all about adventure, which led to the idea of the Dos Equis drinker being more interesting. And where we landed was this sort of expression that was like, Dos Equis is for people that want to live a more interesting life, which is perfectly nice as a sort of strategy line. But to sort of give it some interest and sort of texture, you know, we thought about how could we kind of create an insight around that, because that's just a sort of a statement. Before long, Caroline discovered the insight that really led to the whole campaign. It happened, not surprisingly, at a bar, as she was listening to a guy she was dating at the time tell a story. And I realized halfway through the story that the story he was telling in the first person as his own experience was not, in fact, his story. It was somebody else's story. And I pointed this out to him that he was bullshitting. And the guy who was with us was like, everybody does that. And they just kind of were in agreement that everyone tells stories and you shouldn't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And so that was like a bit of a, it was a sort of moment of insight for me that for this age group, this kind of like 20-something guy, it's really important to not be boring. That's the biggest fear of all. Doseki certainly didn't think of its target customer as insecure and fearful. Still, it felt like a promising way into the brief, into this theme of being interesting. The idea that young men try to make themselves seem more interesting than they really are. Caroline brought the insight to Jeff Kling, the agency's chief creative officer, who a few years before had helped invent another icon of beer masculinity, Miller's High Life Man. And Jeff thought it was fantastic. And the client brief said, here's our consumer. He's this super boffo, confident, urbane, cosmopolitan, dot, dot, dot. Well, far from this thing, this, this amazing creature that the client sees as its consumer, the people that we really want to reach are riddled with fear and insecurity, and their biggest fear is to be thought of as boring. And she told me that, and I thought it was fucking brilliant. There's nothing worth anything that isn't rooted in truth, and she found the truth. Caroline was unsparing in her depiction of this guy she discovered lurking in the brief. She nicknamed him the monster and wrote up a profile to share with the creative department. And it was all about how he kind of sort of dressed up his dating profile to be much more heroic and much more interesting and make him seem like much more of a world traveler and all these things. When Carl and Brandon heard Caroline's insight, though, they struggled to relate to it. To them, this idea that someone's choice of beer might reflect some sort of inner turmoil just didn't jibe with their own experience at all. Brandon and I were like 25, 26. We were completely happy to come back and bring a six-pack of Bud Lights to our friends and be like, here's your beer that I bought. The notion that there were people that were like insecure and trying to impress their friends with their beer choice just seemed absurd to us. Young men fear nothing more than being seen as uninteresting. And that Dos Equis was a slightly more interesting choice, meaning I could come back from the bar with the Dos Equis and I looked like I didn't just default to a beer. However, it also wasn't crazy. I wasn't going to come back with something in like a wild chalice, you know? And I think actually because they were all in that age group, they were all quite offended by that insight. Yeah, they were really fucked up with it, actually. I think they were like, took it as personal offense. So I think that the campaign that they came up with was a big fuck you. Carl and Brandon were able to latch onto one part of Caroline's research, this caricature of the drunken storyteller at the bar, exaggerating the truth for comic effect. This was something they could have fun with. 
If Caroline wanted to dramatize the struggle against being boring, they'd come up with a guy who was the opposite of boring. If the client wanted interesting, they'd create someone very interesting. Yeah, we just scrambled that morning and threw together, I think it was just a one-page thing, if I remember correctly, to communicate this idea of this most interesting man in the world. And it was sort of making fun of the brief and, 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 and taking the piss out of the whole idea. The character, though, didn't come totally out of the blue. The guys were obsessed with a video that was making the rounds at the time, something Brad Neely had made featuring a profane song set to crude animation, exaggerating the heroic exploits of George Washington. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Another reference was an SNL sketch they loved, where Will Ferrell and some buddies sat around drunkenly toasting a mythical character named Bill Brasky, a guy who had a literally unbelievable level of manliness. Brasky directed that commercial where the women play basketball in high heels. He wears a live rattlesnake as a condom. All the Yes album covers are Brasky family photos. Daryl Dawkins has a summer home in Brasky's groin. To Bill Brasky! So they wrote their one-pager describing this most interesting man in the world and presented it. And it definitely struck a chord at the meeting, though not everyone was that impressed at first. In fact, one of the creative bosses, not Jeff Klang, pulled the guys aside afterward and told them how disappointed he was in their work. I do have a clear memory of that, almost an unsolved mysteries kind of memory of that. He called us Team So-So. Yeah, he was like, you're going to be team so-so if you keep doing work like this. Our portfolio had a cover. It was made out of this material we bought at Canal Street Rubber. And it was this soft, rubbery foam material. And I think Aaron called us Sponge Team because I remembered that portfolio cover. And he said, no one's going to call you Sponge Team anymore. They're going to call you Team (laughs) So-So. In fact, Team So-So had just presented an idea that would quickly turn Dosecchi's into the fastest-growing beer in America. Luckily, many others in the meeting saw promise in the idea, including Caroline Credit and Mary Perhatch, the account exec who would eventually have to sell it through. Here's how Mary recalls it. It was such a challenge to figure out what to do with this brand because we had been working on it for such a long time. But when Caroline and I saw it, we thought it was genius. I think they took a left turn into the brief, but it felt very much sort of right for the brand. Jeff Kling also knew they had something very promising. This wishful thinking thing, this paragon human being who drinks our product, it is absurd. And they reflected that in the absurdity that there could even be such a person. And they decided to embody that in one person. The obvious ridiculousness of saying that there could be a most interesting person, I just thought was a wonderful thesis and premise. And then kind of the only thing left to figure out was, all right, how do we make it a Dos Equis thing? Because all we had was a bunch of statements, you know, one-liners and headlines about this guy and then his name. But there was no real thought from Carl and Brandon how to tie that to the beer or, or to turn that into ads. Uh, they left that for me, lazy fuckers. Carl and Brandon began building out ways to execute the idea. They wrote print ads featuring little comic aphorisms. They created applications people could fill out to be the most interesting man's assistant. A website showed the man's ornate but empty desk. He was never there because he was always out being interesting. This was the height of website comedy at the time. And of course, the TV spots. They came up with the line, stay thirsty, my friends. But in reviewing the scripts, Jeff Kling felt like that line actually wasn't enough. And Jeff's looking at it and he's like, I just don't feel like it has an ending. And we were like, I don't know, I don't feel like it has an ending. I think it's good. I think we're all good, right? And he's like, nah, it doesn't have an ending. And then he just thought of that right on the spot. He's like, well, what if he says, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer a Dos Equis. And testament to Brandon and my uh, naivete, we're like, yeah, cool, whatever. You can put that in there. Does that mean we can go home if we say we can put this in here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it ended up, ended up being one of the most famous things in there. It was an awesome addition, but it was definitely not something that we thought of at all. Kling would get a lot of praise later on for that line, having a beer brand admit that people don't always drink beer. But to this day, he thinks that's kind of ridiculous. I'll point out, that was so courageous. How'd you sell that through? That's insane. When really, literally on its face, nobody can ever do anything always. Yeah, of course you don't always drink beer. Fundamentally true. No debate. Sounds debatable, but yeah, no debate. Not a scandal. When I do do that thing that I just mentioned, you know, 
I don't insist on. I prefer it. Who to thunk? You can just express a preference and maybe leave room for people to go, yeah, maybe. That line just gives it such authority and just makes it feel like not an ad that, that I think people really kind of let their guard down and, and enjoyed it almost as content more than as they were being sold. There's not a lot of Dos Equis in the Dos Equis ads, you know? I don't always drink beer and stay thirsty, my friends, were obviously key pieces of the campaign. But the one-liners about the man's exploits were at the core of its popularity. The writing on those was superb. Here are some other memorable lines that would roll out later on from a few different spots that we've edited together. In a past life, he was himself. If opportunity knocks and he's not home, opportunity waits. He gave his father the talk. He has inside jokes with complete strangers. Cuba imports cigars from him. Mosquitoes refuse to bite him, purely out of respect. His fortune cookies simply read, congratulations. Skinny dipping was his idea. He can slam a revolving door. He is the most interesting man in the world. Carl and Brandon's process in coming up with the lines actually turned out to be kind of a funny inverse of the old maxim, write what you know. We were grasping at things to talk about, and so we just started making fun of ourselves. We would pick things that were lame about us, and he just did the opposite. I remember a line that was, he can take as much money out of the ATM as he wants, and his balance will never change. <laughs> you would try to find the ATM machine in the city that had the lowest limit, because you knew that if it was like, you have to take $25 out, it's like, oh, I only have $17 left in my account, so I, I need to find a machine that'll let me take $5 out. I remember another one was like, his shirts never wrinkle. <laughs> he never once alphabetized his DVD collection, which at the time, Carl was a very strict DVD alphabetizer. Turns out, buried in Carl's computer, there was a Word doc with a bunch of old lines in it, many of which were never used. There's some that make you cringe, but there's some that are, are, are pretty <laughs> funny. I actually pulled up once. One is uh, one-handed push-ups. No. Try no-handed push-ups. <laughs> That's pretty good. Some good... He doesn't use the emergency brake, even in emergencies. <laughs> Brandon wrote that one. That was a good one. <laughs> Actually, Brandon, you wrote this one too. I'm just flipping through. It's really funny. His garbage really is another man's gold because he throws away gold. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> a radio campaign was a good way to get more of these one-liners out into the world. The 60-second radio spots could fit eight lines apiece, whereas the TV commercials had just three. Here's a radio spot that won one of the 11 Clios the campaign picked up over the years. It's been said the sun comes up later on the 6th of May, just in case his Cinco parties run long. His birth was prophesized by the Mayans. Lime trees bear fruit on his command. Even Luce Libres remove their masks in his presence. He never sticks with just flour or corn, but switches freely between the two. He once taught a German shepherd to bark in Spanish. He handles sizzling fajita platters barehanded. Bulls flat out refuse to fight him. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. Enjoy Dos Equis responsibly. Imported by Cervezas Mexicanas, White Plains, New York. Stay thirsty, my friends. They did settle on one basic rule for the writing. The man's exploits could be highly implausible, but they shouldn't be impossible. I remember thinking, like, they had this one line, his charisma can be seen from space, and I just hated that line. The things that just couldn't, possibly be true ever felt wrong 
Whereas things that could be possible but were insanely unlikely felt like they would be more in bounds. They also grouped certain lines together, more ridiculous ones next to more subtle ones. You got to take people extremely in one direction and get kind of crazy with it and then have something that's just like extremely mundane. Like he's never said anything tastes like chicken. And there's always tension and movement with it. The gravitas of the line deliveries also brings out the humor. That was thanks to Will Lyman, the voice actor best known for very soberly narrating the PBS series Frontline. It was Carl who discovered Lyman, oddly enough because of this weird obsession Carl has with plane crashes. So I tuned in one night to Frontline, which was not a show I normally watch, but I wanted to watch this thing about airline disasters. And the voiceover was incredible. I was like, man, this guy's awesome. And it was this guy, Will Lyman. And so then we just asked, we're like, can we get this guy to read these lines? And he was up for it. And he was incredible. He would have dozens of pages of lines. And Will Lyman, he would just pound through them. He would do every line two times and it would be perfect. So in a lot of ways, he became a character in the thing that we didn't, we didn't even expect was going to be a character. Lyman auditioned remotely from a studio in Boston, recording many dozen lines. Here's some audio from that first session. It's fun to hear the lines on their own without the bed of music underneath. I got a particular chuckle out of the caveman line. He likes his peanut butter chunky style. And by that, we mean he just eats the jar whole. If he were to try yoga, he would be able to achieve poses that would explode an ordinary man's spine. He once thawed a caveman, taught him how to fire a gun, and then killed him in a duel. When they publish his autobiography, it will sell better than the Bible. He can take as much money out of the ATM as he wants, and his balance will never change. His vote actually does count. Will says it was a pretty straightforward gig. He would just read the lines and didn't feel like he needed to embellish them at all. It's slightly big, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of matter of fact. It's just simple facts. Simple facts about somebody and let the words be as outlandish as they are. I didn't need to add to it at all. Let's just say it. Last couple of years, it got to be more, make it grander. I pressed against that a lot. He enjoyed the campaign immensely. And of course, it became one of the most famous things he's ever done. No one I always remembers. It said that Evil Knievel has a poster of him in his bedroom. <laughs> I thought it was great. Uh, did great things for Dos Equis, I think. They were, they were just fun. They were fun. Fun to do, and they seem to be everywhere. I got an awful lot of requests to do knockoffs of them for various people. A lot of retirement parties were looking for <laughs> the same kind of deal, and I consistently refused. I didn't believe in lampooning or mocking a project that I was currently working on for a client. I didn't think that was fair. He was awesome because he brought such gravity to it. He could say anything, and it felt like it was straight out of the news. Lyman's voice serves another role, too, which goes back to Caroline's original insight. He may sound sober, but really, he's the stand-in for the drunken storyteller at the bar. He's the guy singing about George Washington, the guy toasting Bill Brasky. That was the idea, that even though he spoke with authority and sobriety, he was saying the ludicrous things that people would gossip about at a bar. You know, when you're 10 drinks in, to be like, that guy could, he could deadlift an 18-wheeler. And you're like, no, he can't. <laughs> no. But that was the idea. Here are a few more spots with Lyman's memorable line deliveries. He wouldn't be afraid to show his feminine side if he had one. His mother has a tattoo that reads, Son. At museums, he's allowed to touch the art. His small talk has altered foreign policy. He once ran a marathon because it was on his way. Sasquatch has taken a photograph of him. He is the most interesting man in the world. In the months before launch, the team clearly had a promising idea, but they still faced hurdles on the client side. This wasn't an idea that was just going to sail through. Also, there wasn't just one client, there were two. CCM, the brand's Mexican owner, and Heineken USA, its North American partner. Plus, there were the individual Heineken distributors, a group with very much its own sway in the organization. And up to that point, Jeff Kling hadn't had the best experience working with these clients at all. I had given up on Dos Equis. I didn't think we were going to be able to get 
anything admirable through the apparatus that was in place on the client side at the time. And then something changed and a new client came in in the form of a wonderful and brilliant Dutch gentleman named Willem Vanderhoven. And he got it. He was wonderful. He was a bright spirit with a twinkle of intelligence in his eye and he was respectful. Willem Jan Vanderhoven was a career beverage marketer. He'd been with Heineken for years and was leading Amstel Light in North America when he was also handed Dos Equis. He was also given a sweet $900,000 for consumer research into the brand. And he made very good use of the money to spot an opening in the U.S. market. In those days, you had Heineken beer, which was you have a Rolex, you drive a Mercedes-Benz, you're successful in Wall Street, yada, yada, yada. Or you had Anheuser-Busch, farting dogs, Clydendales, a big sports game, NFL, all that type of shit. So if you are, let's say, more a cerebral thinker, if you are more like people who are looking to be more interesting, people with an intellectual skill, but not want to be posh by being successful and playing golf and Rolex, there was a wide spot there, right? And the beauty of the US is a small spot is a big business opportunity because it's 350 million in the US, right? And that was the insight where we jumped off. Where we said, okay, so how can we create a brand that is for people and not disrespectfully, yeah, but they can think, they're looking to be different, they're not want to air success, right? Because they're probably more politically social uh, oriented than they are its results. And that is how we started to think it through. Lisa Fenning was also a Dos Equis brand manager. And together, she and Vanderhoven started to form a real bond with the agency team. I was on the brand for a little while before Willem joined the team. And when Willem joined, it was just such a breath of fresh air. And he asked me, what do you need to do for this brand? I said, I really think we need to reposition it because only focusing on trying to be what Corona is not is not going to get us very far. Jeff Kling was the big swinger. And I knew Jeff a little bit. And obviously, you know, I was doing Amstel Light. I was burning a lot of cash. So I was interesting for him as well. But Brandon and Carl, they were doing wacky stuff. Just nothing predictable, nothing. And I really enjoyed that, to be honest. Might also be the case that I had a European background where I was a little bit less cautious. I could a little bit deal more with contradictional kind of views. I loved working with these guys. There was big meetings, all suits and ties. And then they came in completely hangover. You could smell it before they walked through the door. And I loved it because you know why? That's target audience, you know? They living the life. I'm an old guy. I'm married. I got a kid. I'm living in White Plains, New York. You know, I'm all my lawn. Not relevant. They were bouncing around in the meatpacking district. They were talking to the people we were trying to, and they were funny like hell. With a foundation of trust beginning to form, it fell to Mary Perhatch to prep the clients for this unusual creative idea that was percolating. You know, I just called them before we presented anything, and I just said, you're not going to expect what you're going to see tomorrow at all. So <laughs> I need you to just sort of take a leap of faith with us and reminded them that we had all agreed like it was a blank slate for this brand and we really had an opportunity to make a splash. You know, I remember the uh, creative presentation meeting really well. Willem and I walked out and he said, what did you think? Which was your favorite? And I said, there's really something interesting, (laughs) pardon the pun, in the most interesting man in the world idea. And he agreed. At that stage, my leader, the CMO at that stage was Ken Kunzi, also a fabulous guy. He said to Willem Jan, we're a bit of desperate, you do your thing. So we landed as a recommendation uh, for the most interesting man of the world. Even with Willem and Lisa on board, it was still going to be an uphill battle. The brewers at CCM in particular were having a hard time with the scripts for the launch spots. And they saw the script and they say, geez, Louise, what a mistake. We should have never, never gone to Heineken USA. The first line of the most interesting man of the world, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I drink the seconds that we ever could imagine to bring this to a beer company. There were also concerns about the casting for the lead role. There was not a lot of belief in the idea, the the idea of using an old guy to market beer to, you know, 21 to 27-year-old guys was people thought we were out of our minds. But Jeff Kling thought those worries, much like the doubts around I don't always drink beer, were misguided, to say the least. And the fundamental assumption of a beer marketer is that if you want to sell beer to young guys in social situations, you have to show young guys drinking beer in social situations. 
You have to show the target to appeal to the target. And at a fundamental level, just thinking about that logically, that's, that's just patently untrue. If you want to make a young guy laugh, throw an old person down the stairs, is how I used to describe it. And in fact, consumers don't like to see brands portraying who brands think people are. They reject brands for that. And yet it persists. If you want to appeal to the target, you have to show the target. And it's just an absolute goddamn lie. It's a complete falsehood. We can show a guy who's not the intended target, but that the intended target will give a big fuck about and talk about and want to talk about and want to emulate. You can bring people in on it in that way, be co-conspiratorial with them. In the end, what actually saved the campaign was something creative people often hate, consumer testing. Here's how Brandon and Caroline remember it. And we had a bunch of funny lines that we had written that we had put over a picture of Wayne Newton in like a tuxedo at a bar. And we photoshopped different aged heads on him. And they took those ads into testing. And they were like, who would you take this piece of advice from? And luckily for us, like it came back as they preferred like an older guy telling them that, which makes a ton of sense. And the ones that were close to the age of of the target group, they were like, that guy's a douchebag. He couldn't possibly have had these experiences. He's not credible. He's not cool. I can't look up to him. He's my peer. And then when you're sort of at the dad age, it's like, that's not that cool either. It's sort of a bit sort of paternal and boring. But this guy who's the grandfather age, he's like, had experiences that are basically history at this point. That was credible and that was cool. And it was pretty much unanimous too. Willem and Lisa had been told they could go ahead if these initial ads tested well. And thankfully, the pre-testing was through the roof in terms of uh, expectations, and we went forward. There was still one big missing piece, though. They needed to find an actor who could really embody this character, on whom the whole concept rested so heavily. After the break, we'll hear from Jonathan Goldsmith about landing the role of a lifetime at age 68. We'll also speak with Steve Miller of Radical Media about directing the spots and how the first shoot got very scary indeed. And we'll look at the later years of the campaign and how it wrapped up, quite awkwardly as it turned out, after a decade on the air. Once again, thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, GSTV. Readers of Muse by Clio may remember that Tombris and their client Moonpie aired a fun and memorable spot for the Super Bowl, featuring the wonderful and quirky Moonpie Child. That spot wasn't on television, but on GSTV, and created completely with the context in mind. While an unusual choice, it makes complete sense considering GSTV is a national video network just steps away from where moon pies are sold. Could GSTV fuel your next creative campaign? To get started, visit gstv.com tagline. Jonathan Goldsmith turned 68 in the fall of 2006 and hadn't enjoyed regular work as an actor in a decade. But he did have a colorful history, which writers would later comb through remarking on the amusing parallels with The Most Interesting Man. And as the Dos Equis campaign went into casting, Jonathan found himself in the running. I was living up in the Sierras. I was really retired, basically. So I found a lovely agent who was one of the few that wanted to handle me after being gone for 10 years. I got a call one day and she said, they're looking for somebody who's a Hemingway-esque type of character. And they don't really know what they want, but they want you to end with an improvisation about your life and end with, and that's how I arm wrestled Fidel Castro. I was going through some difficult times personally, and I was driving my old truck down to town, and I figured I'd stay in a campground to save some money. And I did that, and I was right across from the Malibu colony. And there, across the road, I could hear the frivolity and sense the vibe of everything that had eluded me for so long. And I didn't know if I still had it, if I could make him laugh, if I ever had it, if I just fooled him. But I'd go on the interview anyway. And I reluctantly did after a restless night changing in the bathroom, which had no running water. And I drove down to the audition site. And there, much to my chagrin, were about 500 of the best-looking young Latino guys you've ever seen in your life. And I, I said, this is a terrible mistake. But I had gotten that far, and I actually called Barbara, my agent, who's now my wife, and she said, don't walk out on it. You'll never forgive yourself. Give it a shot. 
I said, well, if nothing else, I hopefully I can make them laugh. Jonathan had been good friends with Fernando Lamas, the Argentine-American actor who was known as the Latin lover. The two of them had been sailing buddies, and Jonathan had always amused Fernando and his friends by doing an impression of him. So at the audition, on impulse, Jonathan decided to put on his Fernando accent, which he would keep doing for the duration of the campaign. And they said, tell me about yourself, and why are you wearing one sock off? And I said, that's an icebreaker. You just asked me, that's why. And they chuckled. So how did you start out in life? I said, well, it was a cross between being a white hunter or an OBGYN. And they started laughing. And this stream of baloney just came out of me. And all I could think about was I had to move my truck or I was going to get a very expensive ticket. But they were nice enough to laugh. And the stuff just came out of me. And I described how I met Che Guevara. I lent him a motorcycle. And I saw all these women bathing in the river. And uh, then what they said, I says, well, I had each one a few times, you know, that's what I do. And they laughed more. And uh, anyway, then it got to, I made the mistake of having sex with, uh, what's his name, Fidel Castro's lover. And so he challenged me to a duel. And I said, that way we could get hurt, you know. So uh, why don't we just arm wrestle? And that's what happened. So uh, that's how I got to the end of it. A few months later, Jonathan gets a call back. Just me and two other fellows. And uh, afterwards, we waited and uh, we got a telephone call from the casting director. And he said, Barbara, they love Jonathan, but they feel that he's just too old. And Barbara took a long pause and she said, Joe, how can the most interesting man in the world be young? And he said, I'll get back to you. And 20 minutes later, they called back. And instead of ending up with a Latino, they ended up with a Jewish young man from New York. At first, Carl and Brandon didn't really know what to make of Goldsmith. Jonathan had a beard and we were like, that's cool. That's weird. People don't have beards. Like now everyone has beards. But at the time, that was like an interesting thing to have. I remember said he had called it the $100,000 dog, which was like a stray dog that he had kind of adopted. But then it kept having to get like surgeries and like medicines and stuff. So he was like, I got this dog off the street and it's cost me a hundred thousand dollars. And I said, vaguely remember him telling Carl and I he lived on a houseboat. Mm-hmm. And I was being like, where? <laughs> Living on a houseboat? He was from LA. But he, he was the guy. And I do think the way he acted and kind of some of the swagger he brought to it definitely influenced it, at least some of the writing and some of the future writing on it as we kind of saw what he brought to the table. Yeah, I remember it came down to Jonathan. It was awesome. And this other dude who was on, I think he had a bit part on that show, Jag. <laughs> he was fine. But like, you like, look like Mike Pence. You're just like, oh, I don't know if that dude's actually interesting. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if Mike Pence is the most interesting man in the world. We didn't know who Mike Pence was at the time, but like, it is interesting. Like if we had made that version with that guy, it would have been... It would have been way different. Yeah. Kind of had a Bond villain vibe and just like a giant chin is kind of what I can remember. With Jonathan on board, Steve Miller of Radical Media was chosen to direct. Carl and Brandon had worked with Steve years earlier and trusted him. In fact, he was the first director they thought of for the project. I remember... I was on Lake George and up in the Adirondacks in New York here. And I received this script and it just said the most interesting man in the world. It was broken into a very, very simple breakdown of who that guy might be, how we may come to know him. And it was just from the start, from those words on the page, it was like, this is something special. In the early meetings, the team hashed out the visual language of the TV work. And later, Steve went so far as to insist on using a lot of vintage equipment to get the right look. And I remember saying that it feels to me like this has to be as if someone had unearthed this trunk and just found all this footage of this absolutely imagined real character. It had to feel like it was being captured, documented, recorded by a friend or somebody that was with him a comrade of sorts, or somebody that was around him. So that gave 
sort of these guidelines, basically, of what would that be? Well, it would be a Bolex camera, an old 16 millimeter camera, old lenses, something that looked almost like reportage, like the old heavy duty cameras that could go into war. And the vibe had to feel as if it was real. But we knew all along, of course, it was always a deeply sarcastic look at a real life. And so he went out of his way to find unique cameras, old cameras, cameras that maybe people don't use anymore because they have a flaw. And we would shoot with those. And it was kind of fascinating because it took a process that people had kind of figured out. And he'd be like, no, we're shooting this in eight millimeter. It's like, wow. All right, well, we'll sit here while you load that camera. They also decided that what the viewer would see on screen should be different from the voiceover lines. I think that came honestly from the writing of Carl and Brandon and Jeff. And it was really smart to see one impression of the man and hear another. And it was all part of this idea of a collection of impressions, really. And by seeing something equally fantastic to what you were hearing, it just gave that much more of breadth to the life that he had lived. In the launch spot, for example, when the voiceover says, his blood smells like cologne, on screen you're seeing Goldsmith releasing a bear from a trap. And actually, that's a whole frightening story in itself. Because that bear, during filming, suddenly decided not to listen to his trainer. And things got very hairy indeed. The bear got loose and charged the trainer and charged towards us. And it was a wild moment because your caveman brain activates. And I remember Jeff Kling was in front of us and Steve Miller, the director, was in front of us. Brandon and I were standing next to each other. And I, my brain went, well, I think that bear is going to eat Steve or Jeff first. So I'm going to be able to run. I remember he had a bag of little sandwiches and he would yell at the bear and then throw like a little sandwich at it. And the bear would eat it and then not be as mad. We had it drawn in the storyboards as the bear was clearly walking away on two feet, looking over his shoulder after the most interesting man released him. And we get to set and realize that bears don't walk like that. But I don't think we were ready to give up on our dream of the bear walking away and, you know, nostalgically looking over his shoulder in in gratefulness. And so we were trying to get him to walk away on two feet. And I think the dude just ran out of sandwiches and was yelling and to Carl's point, doing all sorts of stuff. He just charged him and tackled him into a bush. It was crazy. And the wind was blowing that his assistant came over and tried to like pepper spray or mace the bear. And he just watched the stream of spray come out and the wind just took it completely away (laughs) from it. I think he broke the trainer's ankle, if I remember correctly. Yeah. We were so dumb. Carl and I were so young at the time that, so they take that bear away. And then we keep being like, so when are they bringing the bear back? Like we, we didn't get it. And they're like, no, dude, the bear attacked his trainer. We, we can't bring him back. And we were like, so like after lunch, maybe. They're like, no, that's not going to happen. Well, my recollection of that was slowly backing up and thinking, oh my God, it's the first day, first setup, the first day of the campaign that I'm thrilled to be doing and someone's going to die. He was doing what we needed him to do, like a wonderful trained circus animal almost. And then I sensed this change in the animal. I, I, I felt it. I looked, I, I could see a change in the bear through the monitor. And I remember bringing my eyes up off the monitor and just thinking, holy shit, he is in front of my eyes. This guy's become a man eater. Something about that guy, something he did, some move he made. For some reason, he wasn't happy with it. And he just charged the guy and ran into the bush that the guy ran into. And then just like that, just as fast as he had changed into the beast that it is, it immediately recovered its trained sort of sensibilities and walked right back to where it started and looked at us as if to say, that's cool. I'm good. I just needed to get something out of my system. Let's go. I'm ready. It was crazy. My wife called me that night and I was in the parking lot of whatever park we were in. She was real mad about work and talked all about like the filing of these T7 forms or something. And I listened and then she's like, how's your day? And I was like, ah, the bear we were filming got loose and attacked a bunch of people. She's like, why wouldn't you start with that? That should be the thing you start with. It's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to be a good listener. (laughs) Jeff Kling, ever the big picture guy, saw the upside, which was, well, at least they got one good shot. That's a little unnerving. 
when you hear the one person on set whose only job it is to control the bear shouting like a four-year-old, get him off of me. Like, what? You get him off of you. Sorry, it's your fucking bear. So I think one shot of the bear like rearing up made it into the final edit. So you see the the wide where the bear is full in frame and then you see a spot where the our dude is looking up at the bear and you see the bear's paw and that that paw is prosthetic. It's just like on this long metal rod and a guy's just like <laughs> putting it into frame and it's just it's amazing how convincing all that shit is. I I absolutely love that. I love that stuff. Thankfully, nobody died, but the campaign itself still wasn't guaranteed to survive even at this stage. After finishing the 30 and a few 15s, the next step was to show the work to CCM in Mexico. For Willem Jan Vanderhoven, it was one of the most stressful times in his career. And the films were shown in uh, CCM, so the owner of the brand, and hell broke loose. Hell broke loose. This was horrible. It was so bad. And now they had burned 1.5 million of production value, right? So I remember I was sitting there with Lisa, both of us, we were in a phone call and the guys were speaking and I was completely glowing of embarrassment because they said, such a rubbish and guys, you suck left, you suck right. And, but I've seen the research, right? So I was confident. My phone rings again, my boss, Ken Kunzi, Willem Jan, you need to get into my office. Oh my God, here we go. And Ken said, uh, Willem Jan, look me in the eye and are you standing for this piece of work? I had nervous moments in my career, Tim, and but you know, I said, "All right, this is one of them." And I said, "Ken, actually, I I don't know fully, but what I've seen in response of the right consumers, I think this can work." He says, "I'm now going to call the guys in CCM, and I'm going to put my kahunas on the block, and if they get chopped off, we sink together." I said, "Okay, we're in this together." And he never spoke a word again, right? So he backed me up completely. And that's so important in all those stories which I've been reading of these type of exceptional creative work is that people need to be willing to take a risk. The whole team closed ranks around the work. Mary Perhatch recalls being at the Heineken offices in White Plains going over final cuts of the launch films and Vanderhoven standing up and giving this remarkable pep talk to the team. And we watched it. I'm getting goosebumps like remembering it. And, and Willem got up and he gave this Rudy speech, you know what I mean? About how like we'd all done this together, we were in it together, and this was going to be a moment that we'd remember for the rest of our lives because this was a campaign and nobody expected this from us. And so from the beginning, it just felt like we were this unit and we were committed to this craziness all together and we were all in on it. The final step in the approval process was Heineken USA's National Distributor Conference in Boston where a 1,000 Heineken salespeople from around the country would screen the work. Turns out they weren't much friendlier than the CCM folks. The night before he was due to present, Vanderhoven gets another call from Ken Kunze, who tells him that the top liaison between Heineken corporate and the distributors has just seen the work, and he's furious. And they went ballistic. They said, this is an insult to our distributors. This is my convention. Willem Jan is not getting on stage. 10 hours before showtime, right? You can imagine. And I was sitting there in the Marriott in Boston. I said, oh my God, what's going on here? And then I would say the CEO at that stage, Andy Thomas, he said, you know, guys, Ken backs it up. So I back it up and we're going to show it. Vanderhoven went ahead with his presentation. And while the reaction was mixed, the support of the CMO and CEO was enough to send the campaign into testing. And it ended up testing incredibly well which, of course, calmed the nerves all around. So two weeks after the convention, the Milward Brown scores came through, and it was the best-tested campaign ever in Heineken USA. And I said, guys, we got gold. This is such a unique proposition. Willem Jan Vanderhoven and Ken Kunze both kept their kahunas. The campaign went on the air in April 2007, and the rest really is history. For the next decade... Dos Equis would cut two or three 30-second spots every year, along with four or five 15s, as well as radio, out-of-home, and other ads. Consumers absolutely loved the campaign, and they rewarded the brand with remarkable sales. From launch through 2014, Dos Equis was the single fastest-growing beer in America. Pretty remarkable, given that it was just a regional offering when The Most Interesting Man debuted. The brand was eking out some growth before this campaign launched, 
But in the time I was there, it was always upwards of 30% growth year over year that the brand saw in a category that was not growing double digits at the time. Yeah, so we got an Effie for it, right? So Effie was for me an objective. I like Clio's, don't get me wrong. And but Clio's is acknowledging creative work, right? Which is important. But for a businessman, eventually it needs to turn into sales, right? So we started to grow the brand in New York. We started to grow the brands in Boston. We started to grow the brand in LA. So obviously from a small base, but the growth rates were phenomenal. There are a few other twists to the story, though. The first one comes from the creative department at Euro, where Carl, Brandon, and Jeff Kling, having just created this wonderful character, all decided to leave the agency for other jobs pretty much right as the campaign launched. It was a pretty big loss for Euro at the time, but Carl and Brandon did soften the blow by agreeing to write hundreds of lines for The Most Interesting Man before they left, really cementing the framework of the humor so that others could come in and take over. I will say that was probably you know, the, the best last two weeks of the job was just sitting there writing these lines. And what was awesome for us is over the next couple of years, as other people made them, you'd still see like a line or two you wrote would like pop up and you'd be like, sweet, <laughs> it's still going. They'd even hear lines here and there that they hadn't written, but which they loved. A true testament to what they'd built. One new line that somebody wrote, I don't know who did it, but which I really respect was, he wants Parallel Park to train. Clearly impossible, but so on the other side of that algorithm that we were trying to figure out early days, but I just think that's an absolutely wonderful thought. He wants Parallel Park to train. His two cents is worth $37 and change. It has never been his bad. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer those Zaki's. Stay thirsty, my friends. The other twist, and in many ways an unfortunate footnote on its legacy, was the demise of the campaign, beginning in 2016. Goldsmith had put in 10 solid years as the most interesting man, but then some new clients at Dosecchi's, under the vague rationale of evolving the story, decided to replace him with a 41-year-old French actor named Augustin Legrand. They did one final spot with Goldsmith, where he boards a rocket ship to Mars, never to return, and then tried to continue The Most Interesting Man, just with a different man. Which was conceptually bizarre, and in the end, never did catch on. Steve Miller, who had brought such consistency to the work in the years after Carl, Brandon, and Jeff left, remembers it this way. Someone within Heineken had tasked the agency, incorrectly it turns out, with evolving to a younger guy for some reason. And no one could ever explain why it didn't make sense to me. And um, I thought that it was a disaster to replace him because for me, it was all about you built this rapport with an audience. You created, you bonded a whole group of people to this guy, this character that they could laugh with, laugh at and love. And then you're going to replace him with somebody else. When you peel back the logic and who the guy is, the idea of a new version of him has just made no sense to me. In 2017, a year after dropping Goldsmith, Dosecchi's parted ways with Euro and hired Droga5 as its new agency. A few months after that, the most interesting man in the world was killed off for good, a dozen years after his irresistible debut. His only regret is not knowing what regret feels like. He is the most interesting man in the world. His trip to Mars is only one way. Adios, amigo. Stay thirsty, my friend. Listen, it was a long run. It was a good run. People say, what did you enjoy most? I said, it brought a smile to people's face. I remember Barbara and I were getting off a bus in Manhattan one day, and uh, there's an elderly gentleman in front of us, and he says, hold the bus. And the driver stops, and he turns around to me, had a gold-tip-handled cane, and as if he was knighting me, he says, Sonny, when I come back, I want to be you. <laughs> so <laughs> I had all, oh, so many wonderful experiences like that. I mean, we be walking in traffic in New York, and in the middle of the intersection, people would yell out, hey, stay thirsty, my friend. I still get it all the time. 
even with the masks. We're now wearing the masks for the COVID. So it's wonderful. I loved it. After all, although I was a successful journeyman actor, which means I was out of work most of my life, I did star in over 350 shows. Nobody remembers them. But in this campaign, people remembered and still do, and I'm very grateful to it. Despite the awkward ending, the campaign remains a high point of beer advertising. There was the great writing, of course, but also the consumer insight. As Caroline says, when the campaign launched, it offered a very different take on masculinity from so much of what was in pop culture at the time. It was like everyone loves Raymond, the sort of the apex of the Bud Light frat boy kind of culture. And I think giving this audience of guys credit for being intelligent and wanting to be more sort of interesting and cultivated, not just wanting to get drunk and get laid. It gave them respect. It was just something more sophisticated. And I think sometimes we dumb things down. We don't need to. And I think that's still true. Always start with the consumer insight. And an insight is not an observation because people make a lot of mistakes about observations, but they don't take it to an insight. The insight that I could tell you There was no brand for, let's say, intellectual youngsters between Heineken and Budweiser. That was gold. And that was worth 900,000 US. It really was. And when it came out, they wrote, this is the best work since the WhatsApp campaign from Budweiser. That was quite a pat on the back that you say, wow, I mean, poof. And that's what creativity can do, man. That's what creativity can do. It's priceless. In some ways, Jeff Kling is still surprised that the campaign got made at all. At the same time, he's rarely been as confident in selling something through as he was then. It had to get through two organizations all the way through. In hindsight, it's insane that that happened. And I was in a position to be able to say to the very nervous CEO on the eve of its release, I was able to guarantee that it would kill it for him if he would get over his fear and just let it out the door, which is weird. I mean, you know, often, often we don't know and we can't say, I knew cold dead ass. This will fucking kill it for you. Let it out. People will love this. That's a rare feeling. I really feel the voice and humanity of Carl and Brandon in that work and in that whole approach. And I encourage every creative to do this. Just put yourself in your work. You've got to put yourself in your work. If we go forth on the thing that Mr. Rogers taught us, that we're all unique that there's only one of us, well, if we're putting our own selves into our work, then our work's going to be unique. And if we, on the other hand, think it's our job, God forbid, to make advertising or to do what everybody agrees is an ad, well, then our work won't be unique. For Carl and Brandon, it's such a weird thing. This campaign that started out almost as a joke, yet became iconic. There's a randomness to it that's still hard for them to wrap their heads around. The pair would enjoy another pop culture hit years later at Widening Kennedy, overseeing the Dilly Dilly work for Bud Light, a lightning strike that was surely even more random. And so as they look back, they're really just thankful for the good fortune and the teamwork that made the most interesting man possible. I'm always just kind of struck by the the perfect storm of events that kind of came together for this. Carl and I's first campaign had to die, and then we had to, to sell this through. Jeff had to help us many times along the way. And if he hadn't had moments of inspiration, it would be a different campaign. We've done a few things that become part of culture, but we have no idea what we're doing. It's just like, we're just trying to entertain each other. My stomach hurts when I think about this thing because (laughs) it's like, it changed our lives. And it was literally because we were in the same room on some random morning and we're willing to do the work. We got the right director. We found the right guy. Someone in our in-house editing place, wrote the music, was edited in-house. It was just kind of the perfect time for everyone to kind of put in the right ingredients. And when I think about it now, it's like, God, just one misstep. One person called out sick one day. Carl doesn't show me that Washington video or, or vice versa. It just wouldn't have happened. It's wild. And it's been a good life lesson for me, at least, to just try to be up for everything. And it's been a life lesson for me of like, always just throwing something into the pot. Because you never know. Steve Miller, who worked on it from beginning to end, says the campaign's success really is no mystery at all. It was just a blast. It was what advertising can do. This was just a great character. And then we were able to tell great stories with him. That's it. Who knows? Maybe he'll show up again at your your next party. Back from Mars. 
You've been listening to Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. Thanks to my guests this week, Brandon Henderson, Carl Lieberman, Caroline Credit, Jeff Kling, Mary Perhatch, Willem Jan Vanderhoven, Lisa Fenning, Will Lyman, Jonathan Goldsmith, and Steve Miller. Tagline is a production of Muse by Clio, the content division of the Clio Awards. This week's episode was produced by Carly Angeloni and edited by Mike McInnes and Lane McGibbony. Our designer is Ashley Epping. Our theme music is by Brian Englishman. Thanks to the creative agency Gut and the PR agency Raven for helping us promote the show. And a special thank you as well to our sponsor, GSTV. For more about Tagline and to watch the ads we talk about on every episode, visit taglinepodcast.com or musebyclio.com. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen. I'm Tim Nudd. Thanks for joining me. And we'll be back next week with another new episode of Tagline. This episode of Tagline was brought to you by GSTV. Every day, millions of Americans get in their vehicles and go. Fueling drives commutes, commerce, and connection. And that's when GSTV has the undivided attention of one in three adults every month. GSTV's national video network owns a unique moment for innovative storytelling when consumers are engaged, taking action today, and influenced for tomorrow. Fuel your next creative campaign with GSTV. To get started, visit gstv.com slash tagline.